We will now hear argument in number 94-203, Morse against the Republican Party of uh, Virginia. You may proceed. Thank you. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. This case presents the question whether Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act requires pre-clearing a method of nominating candidates for the United States Senate that restricts the right to vote to persons who pay $45. Under the facts of this case, if you don't pay $45, you have absolutely no say in how the Republican nominee for Senate in Virginia is selected. Section 5 requires the preclearance of all voting standards, practices, or procedures, or prerequisites to voting, no matter how small the change, and was enacted to keep states and political parties from denying recently won gains in registration under the Voting Rights Act. In Presley against Etowah County Commission, this court reaffirmed the broad scope of Section 5 and identified once again a series of categories or typologies of cases which require preclearance. And under the facts alleged in our complaint, this case falls within two of those typologies. Uh, Ms. Carlin, may I inquire? Uh, your, your brief suggests possibly three different theories of why Section 5 might have been violated. And the first is that the $45 fee affects the process of selecting a nominee. And the second is that being a delegate to the convention is an elective party office. And third is the threat that the change from a primary election to a nominating convention uh, required preclearance. Now, were either of those last two theories contained in the complaint, and were they raised below? Are they actually here? Or do we just look at the $45 fee question? Well, Your Honor, they were properly presented below. Uh, as Your Honor knows, this case came up on an expedited schedule with no uh, discovery permitted to the plaintiffs. The result was that we found out when we received the affidavit of David Johnson contained in the joint appendix that the Republican Party had switched from a primary to a convention uh, and that this fee affected, this fee would only be possible were that change in there. We then raised that issue at oral arguments. The change from a primary to a convention, was that, it was not part of your complaint? No, Your Honor. It was not part of our complaint. You Un talked about it. That's correct. Under our complaint, uh, the facts of which must be taken as true for these purposes, uh, we alleged that this was, in effect, a primary election itself, because, as we alleged and the district court assumed, anyone who pays $45 is entitled to go and cast a vote for a nominee. Well, the court below did not deal with those, uh, the, with the second and third so-called theories? No, Your Honor, it did. It held that nothing connected with a convention required preclearance not the imposition of a fee, not the rules governing who could attend, and not the decision under Section but 5. But do you think it dealt with, with the issue of whether the change itself from a primary to a convention required preclearance? It said, Your Honor, that nothing connected with a convention, including uh, implicitly the decision to hold one, is covered. But certainly not expressly. It didn't expressly deal with that, did it? No, Your Honor, but under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 15, we were entitled to conform the pleadings to the proof, and had this case not been done in the expedited manner in which it was done, we could have uh, amended the complaint. Now, under Rule 15, the failure to amend the complaint need not keep the court from reaching that issue. 
If this Court concludes that that's the central question and that that issue wasn't sufficiently developed, then the proper uh, response from the Court would be to reverse the judgment of the District Court granting the motion to dismiss and remand for further proceedings in which that issue can be expressly litigated. Now, there are two theories of Section 5 alleged in the complaint under which, under the text of the Voting Rights Act, this practice is covered. The first of these is that the Republican Party's practices here, given the facts alleged, constitute a primary in and of themselves. A primary election, after all, is an election in which individual voters who are adherents of a political party nominate a candidate by casting ballots. A preliminary question, at least I think it's preliminary to that. The section that you're dealing with speaks of whenever a state or a political subdivision it seems to be addressed to a state or a political unit of a state, how then can you proceed under Section 5 against a political party? Well, Justice Ginsburg, a political party under the circumstances of this case is a state actor. In the same way that the 15th Amendment, by its terms, simply guarantees the right to vote against abridgment or denial by a state and has been held uh, to cover political parties when they are engaged in the public nominating function. I so can see that if you, you're referring to constitutional decisions under the Constitution, like Terry and Smith against All Right. But here we have a statute, and the statute addresses state or political subdivision. Is there any definition of those words in the statute itself? There is no definition of state in the statute itself, Your Honor. The statute was by its term, specifically enacted to enforce the guarantees of the 15th Amendment, and thereby, it seems clear from the legislative history, intended to reach political parties as well. For example, we cite in our brief, Your Honor, the statement from the House Subcommittee of the Judiciary that uh, was responsible for the hearings on Section 5, stating directly, an election of delegates to a state party convention is covered, and a statement by Representative Bingham, the author of the language defining the term vote in Section 14C1, making clear that party canvases and caucuses that selected people who were involved in the nomination of candidates to public office were covered by the Act because they were state actors. Ms. Garland, how can that be? Can I not form a political party? Let's say a, 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 a feminist group wants to start a women's political party. Only women can be members. Anybody in the world can vote for their candidates, but it's a women it's a woman's party. That that's not permitted under un, under under this legislation. It's it's uh, action by the state simply because that party excludes men from participating in the political party. Your Honor, Section Five of the Voting Rights Act would not cover uh, the decision to form a party as discriminatory on the basis of race, but the Their 19th selection Amendment. Of a candidate. Their selection of a candidate. The 19th Amendment, Your Honor, would say that if that party performs the public electoral function of nominating a candidate for United States Senator, they would be covered by the Constitution. May I ask if the uh, Virginia statutes draw a distinction between new parties such as Justice Scalia's Feminist Party and established parties like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party? Yes, Justice Stevens. What the, is the difference in, under Virginia law? Under Virginia law, a political party within the meaning of the Virginia statute uh, only comes into being if at one of the last two statewide general elections some candidate of that party received 10% of the votes cast for a statewide office so that the party to which Justice Scalia refers would not itself be covered. However... Unless it was successful. 
ultimately one election, and thereupon it would have to be, I suppose, disbanded. Under the 19th Amendment, which is not at issue in this case, yes, Your Honor, which says that no state shall abridge or deny the right to vote on account of sex. Well, but the, the question is whether or not this is a, is a, a state or a political subdivision. Uh, and it, it seems to me, in, in light of the two cases Justice Ginsburg mentioned, Terry versus Adams and Smith versus Allwright, uh, that you have a difficult position to maintain. The Congress was well aware of those cases. They were well aware of the uh, white primary cases, and yet they used the words state and political subdivision. They didn't say, or any other entity which is a state actor. Well, but and that's what you want. And you want us to say the latter, didn't you? Well, but Justice Kennedy, the provision under which the exclusions in Terry and in Smith against Allwright were found discriminatory was a provision that only applied to states. So Congress could reasonably assume that if it was state action for a political party to bar someone from a pre-primary in which there was no governmental involvement whatsoever... I, I am assuming that the state act and action cases are, are correct. The point is, is that this jurisprudence was in front of the Congress and they chose this rather limited language. No, Your Honor, this language is not limited. This is the same language under which the court held that political parties were covered. Now, Your Honor... The court held to... political parties were covered in those cases when... when election uh, as the nominee of that political party was effectively election to the office. No, That's Your Honor. quite a different situation from what one has here. No, Your Honor. In United States Against Classic, the case on which both Smith and Terry rely, the court said that the primary was an integral part of the election process, whether it always, sometimes, or never resulted in the election of a candidate. No question it, about that, but, but they, they were, those cases did not purport to be uh, interpreting this language. The statute was later enacted, and they did not focus on the word state or political subdivision. They talked about state action, of course. Well, Your Honor, if I may draw a historical point not in the record. In 1965, the states that were covered by the Voting Rights Act were all states in the solid South, which was solidly democratic. Had Congress passed a law with the understanding that you have advanced, one that didn't apply to political parties, it is patently clear that the Voting Rights Act would have been strangled at its birth because all of the discrimination would simply have been conducted by the Democratic Party in the South and the Voting Rights Act would have been a dead letter. Now, it's clear that that's so from both the statement in the House report and Representative Bingham's statement of what the language involving voting was intended well, to Well, Ms. Carlin, the Attorney General has adopted a number of regulations pursuant to Section 5 and the provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Do you concede that all the Attorney General's regulations that are relevant here are valid? Uh, I believe that they are all valid, yes, Your Honor, and they do provide that when political parties perform the state action... And you rely on those regulations to make your case? They certainly support our case, but even if those regulations were invalid, our case would go forward, because our claim is that this is a primary election in the same way that the behavior in Terry was Do you think primary. that absent those regulations, uh, your position would be sustained here? I would hope so, Your Honor. I don't think our position depends on the Attorney General reg mm -hmm. General's regulations. His regulations are based on the same understanding which we have advanced, which is that state action covers a political party when it's engaged in the process of nominating a candidate for public office. Ms. Collin, you say that this would not have been, it would have been a dead letter if it couldn't have been applied against the Democratic Party in the South in the, in the era when it was enacted. How many times uh, was it applied against the Democratic Party in the South? Uh, Your Honor, I only have the list of the number of times where objections were lodged, and that was about uh, a dozen. There's a citation to the Turner uh, affidavit by the Assistant Attorney General. How, how recent is, is that dozen? 
That was in 1982, Your Honor. 1982, a good deal after uh, the South was... Uh, uh, no, that was a list of that you described. No, Your Honor, that's a list of all of the objections imposed as of the date 1982, not objections in the year 1982. Just 12. Yes, Your Honor. Ms. Carlin, may I go back to the textual argument? You, if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that state is to be construed to include anyone who exercises a state function. The the process of winnowing candidates down is a state function, and therefore it applies here. Is that basically yes, Your what you're saying? If that's the way the Congress intended the word state to be construed, why did it refer to political subdivision at all? Because it seems to me, maybe I'm missing something, but it seems to me that political subdivision would be uh, included uh, on your definition without specific reference to it, without the need for specific reference to it, whenever it was engaged uh, in, in effect in discharging any of the processes by which the state government uh, would ultimately uh, bring an election or, or a, a series of choices to be uh, to be made in election before the people. So why is it in there at all? The reason it's in there, Justice Souter, is because Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act only applies to particular places. Sometimes those places are entire states. But in some cases, like North Carolina or New York, only particular political subdivisions, only particular geographic reasons are covered uh, by the statute uh. at all. And so if you only okay. provided no state, it wouldn't define, for example, the preclearance cases that this court has seen from North Carolina or from New York. UJO against mm -hmm. Terry. Why is that? Wouldn't a political subdivision still be a state? Wouldn't it still be state action? No, Your Honor. It's not there to define state action. It's there to define which geographic areas of the country are covered. Because if you only said state, then that wouldn't explain why, for example, a change in electoral rules in Manhattan is covered, but not a change in Westchester County. That's from the triggering provisions. At least it would have been a serious question. I mean, That's correct. The triggering provisions of Section 4 identify political subdivisions for purposes of deciding what's covered by preclearance, not for purposes of deciding what the standard is or, who, or whom the actor is. Um, if there are no further questions, I'll... I have one further question. Under your view, if in a covered jurisdiction there is a small group of citizens, uh, two or three of them, who have uh, substantial community influence uh, and, and, and many, many funds, if, if they meet in someone's home to decide who's going to be the candidate and their voice is, in effect, uh, conclusive as to who will be the successful candidate in a particular party, are they covered? No, Your Honor. What? because they are not exercising a delegated state function as the Virginia Republicans are under Section 509B in this case. Thank you, Mr. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. Under Virginia law, a political party <clears throat> that gets 10% or more of the vote at an election is entitled to place the candidate it selects for the U.S. Senate on the ballot in a preferred position as long as the party maintains a certain kind of organization prescribed by the state. Uh, the party is then entitled under Virginia law to choose its candidate either through a primary or through a convention or through some other means. Both the district court and the appellees in this case agree that if the party chooses to choose its candidate through a primary election, that changes in the rules about who can vote at that primary election to choose the candidate are covered by Section 5. I think that's common ground. The district court, however, decided that if the party chooses not to use the primary uh, election as a way of choosing its candidates, but instead to choose through a convention, 
then Section 5 does not apply. Well, Mr. Bender, I can understand an argument to the effect that if the state permits a, a party to change from a primary election to a convention method, that that action by the state in allowing that change is something that in and of itself could be challenged under Section 5. But I'm not sure that's what was done here. I'm not sure that question is here before us. And uh, we're, we're reaching it by, by a very different route, as I see it. I think the question is whether when under state law a party or any other group has a right to put a candidate on the ballot in a preferred position if they maintain a certain organization. Those are the facts of this case. If a party is given that power under state law, whether when the party makes a change in who can participate in that selection process, whether that is subject to preclearance. Well, and back up a minute. Do you think that it would be open to challenge under Section 5 if uh, the state allows a change from a primary election to a convention method? Yes, if a state, if state law does Do you think clear. that question is before us in this case? Uh, I don't think that question is before you in this case. I think that the district court did not decide that question. If uh, that... You, it's unclear in this case whether that kind of change was made because they apparently have never used a uh, have never used a primary, even though on, on a couple of occasions the party has said it was going to have a primary. That question of whether that change was made has not been decided below and would have to be would have to be remanded. But I, I don't think you have to do that because the change in it seems to me that the basic principle here is that the change in the people who can select a candidate to go on the ballot is a change sufficiently related to the general election so that that change needs to be pre-cleared. And that's true whether the change occurs through a matter of state law or whether the change occurs through a matter of city law or county law or political party law when the political party is given the right to put the candidate on the ballot in a preferred position. Just Bender, what, what do you mean by a preferred position? Suppose the state just says every party that in the last election got 1% or more of the vote is entitled automatically to be listed on the ballot in the next election. I think that case would come out the same way, although it's a little bit closer. That gives, that gives the, uh, the government the, the right to require that party to, to, to submit to the government for its approval any change in the process by which that party selects its candidates. I wouldn't say any change in the process by which the party selects the candidates. I think this, this case involves something that's very close to the election process, and that is the people who can select the party's candidates. If you, if you affirm the decision of the district court in this case, that would mean that in a state like Virginia, where parties have an automatic place on the ballot, the major parties could preclude members of certain races from voting for the candidate to go on the it's ballot. very close to the political process, but it's also very close to freedom of association. Right. The, the ability of people to band together under what rules they desire to, to take political action. And, and I think your, your position is that by simply agreeing to put whoever forms such an association on the ballot, the state acquires considerable control over the manner in which those people have to conduct their political life. I think the Attorney General's regulations about the coverage of political parties, which have existed since 1982, the Attorney General has actually, actually pre-cleared party submissions since 1972 and has up... How many has he pre-cleared? Over a thousand. Par party submissions? Yes. In, in, in what... Outside of the context of primaries? No, including the context of primaries. How many outside of the context About of primaries? Between three and four hundred. 
outside of the context of private. One, for example, comes from Virginia, which is in the, uh, the lodging that was made with the, with the court. In 1982, the Democratic Party in Virginia uh, pre-cleared, and uh, Assistant Attorney General Reynolds uh, tried to pre-clear, and Assistant Attorney General Reynolds did pre-clear a change almost identical to the change in terms of its relation to the uh, voting process, almost, almost identical to the change in this case. It was a change in the way the votes were going to be allocated at the party's convention. Uh, and they, the Democratic Party in Virginia apply, applied for preclearance, and preclearance was given. And as I say, there have been over 300 of those kinds of submissions over the years. The Attorney General's regulation... It's a necessary part of your position, is it not, that you cannot form a party on any basis that it would be unconstitutional or unlawful for the state to discriminate on the basis of? The, the, the key to this case is the state's relationship to the party. If people can form a party, form a group, as in Justice Kennedy's question, and decide that they're going to support a nominee at the election, and if you need 15,000 signatures to put the nominee on the ballot, they're going to go out and get the 15,000 signatures. If five of them have been doing that for 10 years and decide, let's let a sixth person into that group, there needs to be no preclearance because there isn't the kind of connection there is here between state law and what the party does. Parties have but an official position. But if the state position. agrees to let them on the ballot, the state can effectively preclude a party from being formed that is, it is all black, that is all white, that, that is all rich people, that is all poor people, or whatever. If it lets them on the ballot in the same way it lets anybody else on the ballot, then preclearance doesn't apply. Preclearance applies when it has special rules for parties. And it, the, don't, I, I don't think you should denigrate the preferred position that parties get. In Virginia, they are listed first on the ballot. Every study of elections that I know says that that is worth an enormous amount to be listed before the independent candidates. Virginia has given them that privilege. So we will only prevent these specialized parties when they're successful? No, not when they're successful. We only require preclearance of the party's rules when the party is given by the state some power that other people don't have. The Attorney General's regulation under Section 5 attempts to cut down. This Court's decisions about what has to be pre-cleared because of its relationship to a general election are very broad, starting with the Allen case. And is that rationale that you're offering to us now, that the delegated power, the preferred position, is that what makes it a political subdivision under the statute? No, it's not a political subdivision, Justice Kennedy. It's the state under the statute. Or the, the state. The concept of the state, as Ms. Carlin said, the, the political subdivision is in there because they're talking about the coverage formula. The two but, things that are but that's what makes it the state. And as the court said in Sheffield, the concept of state and political subdivision are territorial. And within that territory, every entity, as Sheffield said, which would be the state under the court's state action principles, and it's clear that a party in this respect would be the state, every entity that would be the state is covered. So the state is used in Section 5 as the word state is used in this court state action jurisprudence, not in the formal sense of the state. And you can see that in the Doggerty case, for example, where a school board put a financial burden on an employee and so they had to take a leave in order to, uh, in order to run for election, and the court held that that had to be pre-cleared. Now, that school board has nothing to do with voting. Well, then the, the, the term state is coterminous with our state action jurisprudence? Yes, except that the attorney general's regulations should be given a lot of deference in, in dealing with that definition. And the Attorney General's regulations have tried to trim that concept some so as not to interfere with the constitutionally protected right of political association. Mr. Bender, I thought you had said that state is not coterminous with state action because you're saying that the, the addition of this element of, of preference, as you put it, uh, is crucial. 
you said that if a state allowed any party onto the ballot on the same uh, to place a, a, um, a candidate on the ballot on the same terms of any other party, that that would not trigger applicability. And yet that would be state action, would it not? Because each of the parties, uh, including the, the little splinter group that was in the hypo, would be performing a state function of, of winnowing candidates. Uh, I think the question, Justice Souter, is whether the, the action of a group of people in deciding who they're going to support for election, who they're going to go out and get signatures for, is state action. And I'm very doubtful whether if five of us get together and decide to get 50,000... Okay, but once, once, they, once they organize themselves and say the five of us are going to be the X party, uh, and the state says, yeah, five, uh, five signatures on the petition is enough to get on the ballot, uh, they would then be, on your theory, performing state action. I don't think so. I think the line would be drawn there. If they treated... Answering the if they treated just like any other group of people, then I don't think they are. At least under the But they are performing a state function even in that case. They are performing a state function. I don't think so. I, th I think uh, I don't see how deciding who you're going to support for elections performing a state function. So winnowing, ca winnowing possible candidates down is not a state function on you. Not in itself, no. Thank you, Mr. Bender. Mr. Getchell. Justice Stevens, and may it please the court. The opinion of the district court should be affirmed because it's in accord with the plain meaning of the statute and the regulation. The Voting Rights Act applies to a state or political subdivision, uh, which is covered by certain uh, terms in Section 4 of the Act. When that state or political subdivision alters a qualification or prerequisite for voting or a standard practice or procedure without respect, with respect to voting, and voting, as you would expect in a statute about voting, is a defined term. And voting is defined as, as those actions necessary to make a vote effective in a primary, special, or general election. Mr. Getchell, do you concede the uh, validity of the Attorney General's regulations here? Um, not if they are construed as the Attorney General would have them be construed, because I think that would uh, raise grave First Amendment issues. Well, the regulations seem to extend the application to political parties in some circumstances. Do you concede that that's a, a valid interpretation, that a political party can be a state actor? There are, there are certain uh, actions performed by the political parties which are clearly delegated public electoral functions uh, involving ex exclusively... Well, could you answer my question? Do you concede that a political party can be a state actor? It can be. Under the statute? It can be. Uh, I think the only area where it ever is is when it is conducting a primary, when it is setting rules for a primary, because a primary implicates the machinery of the state, the electoral machinery of the state, the state ballot boxes, the state officers, the state polling places. It has traditionally been a state function because it's neutral. It exists only to count votes. On the other hand, a convention is intensely political. Uh, the nominating process itself, the decision to nominate anybody, is personal and political. Well, that's it's a curious line to draw because where the state is conducting primary election activities by way of administering them, I assume that any change can be challenged by, by a suit against the state itself. Uh, so the line you would draw is a little curious, I would think. I think the, the, the line that I have drawn is, is the one that the, uh, that the Attorney General sought to draw in the regulation. The, uh, the statute itself doesn't address political parties at all. 
The regulation says that uh, the party... No, so I would have thought you might just say, well, the statute doesn't reach political parties, but that's not it, true. It does not reach political parties on its face. The jurisprudence um, that has developed in the lower courts has drawn the distinction between primaries when it uh, is deemed to be acting as the state and, uh, and conventions and other... What political... jurisprudence are you talking about? I'm talking about uh, uh, Williams uh, versus a Democratic Party, which this court uh, summarily affirmed in 1972. The uh, Congress has twice readopted the Voting Rights Act uh, since then, presumably knowing of that jurisprudence. Uh, basically, that case said it does not apply to, uh, to conventions. Um, McGuire versus Amos decided the same year, although it was dicta in a footnote, uh, a distinguished... Uh, uh, Williams uh, versus Democratic Party to note that a, a convention was not involved in the Alabama case. Um, so without, without, uh, without conceding that in all circumstances that that regulation is, is valid, um, it was not our purpose to challenge the regulation. Our purpose was to say that the regulation clearly excludes us because the regulation only applies to a political party if, one, the political party is exercising a traditional public electoral function and B, that function has been delegated. There's well, Mr. Getchell, is it fair to say that it is only exercising that function, on your view, if it is in fact using traditional state machinery? Yes, Your Honor. So that in, it is fair to say, I take it then, on your view, that although there are some circumstances in which the party would be covered, there are no circumstances in which the party would be covered which could not also be subject to a challenge directly to the state itself. I believe that to be the case, Your Honor. Okay. So if we had a $45 fee for a primary, that would be subject to preclearance. Well, if it were, if it were viewed as a, as a uh, direct qualification for voting in the primary, um, it presumably would be. On the other hand, if it were viewed as a delegate registration fee, this court has struck down exorbitant delegation, I mean, uh, delegate or candidate registration fees, but it said that it was not uh, saying that they were improper in all circumstances. But if the, if the convention, as I understand it, is effectively a substitute for the primary. They both serve the same function in selecting candidates who will appear in preferred positions on the ballot. The function is identical, is it not? Uh, why no. shouldn't the coverage be the same? I, I, I would uh, commend to your honor the uh, law review article by Professor Wiesberg that, that we have uh, uh, cited uh, several times in our briefs where he makes the, uh, the political science point that they're quite different animals. Um, the state provides neutral electoral machinery and has no valid interest but that the votes be fairly counted. The convention is a voluntary grassroots meeting of people who um, are seeking a very unneutral end. Uh, they are exercising their core First Amendment rights, and anything that attempts to trench on that would have to be justified by compelling state interest uh, and a narrowly tailored piece of uh, legislation. In your view, then, would this $45 fee stand on the same level as, say, the uh, requirement of passing a literacy test? No, Your Honor. This, practically, what this $45 fee is is reflected by the fact that we are dealing with a voluntary organization. Uh, because we have the largest political primary, we believe, uh, in the Western world, I mean, uh, we have the largest convention, although they call it a primary. I'm getting ahead of myself. They want to criticize our convention. They want to call it an indoor primary because it's so inclusive. Um, then at the same time, they want to say it's exclusive because the fee is charged. Because the convention is so large, uh, with uh, 14,000 delegates at the most recent convention, we have to hire the largest uh, hall in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it costs money. In the affidavit uh, 
uh, that was filed with respect to the 93 convention, the number was $300,000. So you're saying the difference in that on a literacy test is that yours is more a more reasonable requirement? I don't see but We're asking about whether or not the, the, I, liter I, the hypothetical liter literacy test is subject to challenge under, under either the I may I may have under, misunderstood the hypothetical. If you are asking whether or not the party, qua party, could do unreasonable things, uh, extreme things, be a feminist party, be a racial party, uh, be a party of plutocrats or a party of intellectuals, yes, as long as it doesn't have state action, it can. So, so in, your, in, in your view, this what I, I mean, the, the, it's a difficult question, I, I realize, but I put the obvious question to you. In, in your view, if the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, neither of which would, but it used to be a problem, if either of them said, I have a primary and only white people can vote, we agree that's illegal. We agree that's All covered. Right. So now what they do is we're not going to have a primary. Rather, we're going to call every voter who wants to come and vote in the primary to come to my meeting, whoever wants to come, and we will vote and we'll call it a convention. And, and only white people can vote. That, in your opinion, the Voting Rights Act just doesn't cover. And, um, and that, that's, that's what I can't quite understand why the people who would have written this Voting Rights Act would have wanted not to cover that possible situation since it did exist many years ago. They, I think they very definitely wanted to avoid any collision with First Amendment rights. So you're saying they didn't want to cover the possibility that the Democratic Party in the South or the Republican Party would say, oh, we no longer can insist only whites vote at the primary. So what we'll do is we'll do exactly the same thing but call it a convention. I am saying they didn't want to cover that obvious situation I, despite Terry the you know the, the cases that seem quite similar. I am saying simply um, um, your uh, justice O'Brien that they didn't cover it. Now it could maybe be, they wanted to but didn't think they had the power to. Well, I believe they would have very a uh, very grave constitutional uh, problems. Right, and the evidence that they didn't want to cover it even though there was a Supreme Court case right on point uh, which said that it was covered under the Constitution. The evidence they didn't want to cover it is what? I would, uh, would submit that it is first in the plain language of the uh, statute. I would submit that it's secondly in the fact that the statute has twice been uh, uh, reaffirmed or repassed knowing what the jurisprudence was. I would say that the prior practice uh, is not that convention rules have been cleared. Only one has been brought to this court's attention, one incidence when the Democratic Party of Virginia did it in 1982, whether in error or out of an abundance of caution, I do not know. I would say that on the, um, on the uh, legislative history, that all of the legislative history is either for my position or neutral, except for the one statement by Congressman Bingham. I would say that this court has traditionally held that one chance statement by one congressman is not valid legislative history. I would say that if you look at Section 11, which is the criminal part of this uh, act, which has to be narrowly construed, they use the same language about, about primary, special, and general elections. And I would submit uh, that, uh, that that would not, uh, that they didn't use that language differently well, in two different places. Mitchell, uh, what about the change that Justice Breyer asked about from the conduct of a primary election to holding a party convention instead? Is that action subject to challenge under Section 5? That, that challenge, um, one, may I, may I uh, say with respect to that question that we submit that no change, such change was made. That this if there were a change, a party says, okay, the statute will reach us if we exclude people under the primary, 
So we want to change to a convention system. Would that change be subject to challenge? I, I believe. In your view. I, I believe that the statute that permits, um, in the state's view, a, a party to call upon it to conduct a primary when that statute is changed, that is uh, subject to preclearance. I believe, arguably, when the state uh, um, acquiesces in a call for the party to actually conduct the primary, that that requires preclearance. When the party has a statute like we have in Virginia, which says you can have a convention or a primary, let us know if you want a primary, and elects to make the change, I don't think the party as a party is subject to preclearance because under your traditional state action um, uh, case law, Blum versus Uretsky, for example, um, if, an, if a private actor is making private choices within a statutory framework, that is, does not trigger state action. So I would say that whenever the state changes its law, or when the uh, state ch makes uh, changes a practice, that's subject to preclearance. What ask, we do is not. May I ask you a question? Do you think the case of Terry against Adams, the Jaybird case, is still good law? I think it's I think it's good law, but I think uh, that, that. Well, how do you do? And the word involved there was state in the Fifteenth Amendment. Why is the word state? Uh, narrower or broader in the, in the Constitution than it is in this statute, which is enacted to enforce the 15th Amendment? I would say that, that uh, Terry v. Adams and uh, Smith v. Allwright are, are extremely fact-specific. I would say the commentators have said that as well. I would adopt Professor Weisberg's analysis, which is those cases were only applicable because of the pervasive state regulation. The state required that a primary be conducted. It required that the party decide who could vote in the primary. It was obviously in complicity with uh, the racist intentions of the Democratic Party. It uh, furthermore... What about the pre-primary? What about the uh, Jaybird case? That, that, is, that is subject to the same analysis. It, it depends upon a pervasive uh, state regulation of the Democratic Party. I know you cite the professor's article, but which opinion that was written in that case supports your analysis? The, uh, the opinions, of course, in, in both uh, Smith v. Allwright uh, and in Terry v. Adams, um, uh, I believe are plurality opinions, uh, and basically the state act action for most or all of the justices noted the fact that it was a one-party state that the nomination was tantamount to election. Uh, the, the cases clearly view that the public function being delegated is the selection of well, public office. Would your position office. be different in this case if Virginia was a one-party state? If Virginia were a one-party state, it would be subject to suit under the same theory uh, under the Constitution. I don't, would I don't your, conceive would your this act would apply. But your construction of the, the Voting Rights Act, the statute, be different if we only had a, a Democratic Party over 10% in any election? If you had only, if you had the same facts you had in those cases, you would get the same results under the Constitution. I'm asking you about the statute. Under sec specifically Section 5 of the statute, um, if if it could be shown that the party were it's exercising, shown that there's only one party that has more than 10 percent of the vote. If it has, if there's only one party with with 10 more than 10 percent of the vote, then presumably 28 CFR 51.7, the Attorney General's regulation, would cover what the party was doing because it would. Oh, but be, would the statute cover it? The statute does not, by its terms, cover it unless you then view then the how state can, as the how act. Then how can the regulation cover it if the statute doesn't? 
you would then, under that jurisprudence, uh, have a court entitled logically to say that the party was the state, and therefore well, of the. Of course, well, I mean, why not interpret state there to mean sure. what state means under the Constitution? Sure, you, but but we're not. But me, you, you, you would you would have to concede that the statute would, re, would would apply. But there's no case law that says that that when we are engaged merely in the nomination function, that we're engaged in the state uh, state action. There is. In any case, you don't take the position that you have got that we would have to hold that what you were engaging in was a primary within the meaning of the statute in order to be covered. You don't take that position, do you? I, I take the position that we have to be the state, that being involved in a primary has been held by many courts to be state action. That right, but a, you're not saying that as a textual matter this has got to be a primary within no, the meaning no, of the statute? No, okay. but I think as a practical matter that's where we end up. And when you say be involved in a primary, a party would still be able to maintain its, uh, its own uh, integrity, however kooky it may be, if it decided to pay for its own primary. Well, if it decided we we are having a party-sponsored statewide vote and it sets up, uh, you know, precincts in which people can come and vote, that that's not what you mean by a primary, um, state-run primary. I mean a state-run primary. Um, Dr. Wies, uh, Professor Weisberg points out that that some states purport to have laws that require primaries, require uh, political parties to engage in primaries. He points out that after your decision in the Democratic Party of the U.S. versus Wisconsin, and particularly footnote 31. Those statutes are all presumptively unconstitutional. If we as a party want to avail ourselves of the public apparatus of a primary, then we in, entangle ourselves with the state, and, and the state action at least is subject to preclearance. But when we merely nominate with our own uh, uh, people in our own convention, we are not subject uh, to, uh, to the prior leave of the government. It would be terribly unseemly if, uh, if an organization that exists to change the government uh, had to uh, pre-clear the time, place, date, and rules uh, for its convention, even if conceptually you could do that, which you can't, because a convention is a law unto itself. It makes its own rules. What, what would you say with reference to the uh, scope and the meaning of the defined term voting uh, in Section 14? Voting is defined as all action necessary to make a vote effective in any primary. Would in, you... In any... Would, would you agree that uh, voting might be, uh, the, the voting requirement might be complied with here, uh, even if state uh, or subdivision is not? Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I, most, I most vigorously deny that it would be so. So you, you, you do not think that the action in question here, the $45 fee, is within the purview of the defined term voting in Section 14? No, sir, I, I do not. Well, is that because you think a delegate is not a party official? I think it's because we're not dealing with a primary, special, or general election. Well, but you don't, as, as you conceded a moment ago, that's not necessarily the, the, the case for statutory applicability. And doesn't, I don't have the voting definition in front of me, but doesn't it include, I guess it was in the later amendment, at least in the tail end of it, um, uh, uh, voting uh, for a party official. Isn't that included that within the meaning? Voting for the party official has always been in there, but that means voting in a primary, because voting is a... Well, why, I mean, why? Isn't is a, 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 a delegate to a party convention is a party official? Yes. Why, therefore, doesn't the term, well, what is the definition by its terms, cover voting for that official? It is anything necessary to make a vote effective in a primary, special, or general election, which I think has a very distinct meaning. That yeah, but you stop halfway through the definition. I don't complete the definition, and and you you pick up party official. I agree. And party official, I presume, is a broader concept 
then merely the concept of those who, in the gross sense, would be subject to a statewide primary, for example. Party officials, particularly in the South, Democratic Party officials, when the act was passed, were elected in primaries. Um, yeah, and now they're elected, um, uh, it, it, it appears, in some cases, by convention. And I don't see anything in the definition which excludes them from the, the definition uh, when, uh, in, in so far as it extends to, to party officials. Party officials are not excluded as long as they're elected in primary, special, or general elections. I still but have the, a problem in the, 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 the defined term is that voting includes all action necessary to make a vote effective. And that seems to me to cover what you're talking well, what about. It, what it I, I'm not sure that you lose even if we concede that this is voting. Maybe you do. Well, the, the reason that I'm very concerned about that, that point of view, um, uh, Justice Kennedy, is that it is not a state function to nominate. And even though that conceptually, if you don't have a candidate, you don't, you don't make a vote effective, what is being argued for by the appellants is very, very radical. It says that if, if we uh, nominate, then we're part of voting. Okay. Now, this was an argument, again, uh, Professor Wiesbard uh, points out, this was an argument that was, uh, was made by commentators in the 60s following the 68 Democratic Convention. There were some lower courts uh, that seemed to make uh, nomination a public function. Um, and then he, uh, he reviewed your uh, First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, in, uh, particularly in... Uh, in Cousins v. Wagoda and in the uh, um, Democratic Party of the U.S. v. Wisconsin, and I would add to that uh, the U. case, and uh, it is perfectly, it seems to me, perfectly persuasive that this court would say that everything that happens primar uh, prior to an election and the involvement of state apparatus is First Amendment private activity. Uh, it is not a state function, and, and uh, Justice Souter, with, with all a deference on the idea that winnowing is a state function. That is a notion that comes out of the Storer case. But in Virginia, there is no winnowing, because in California, if you, if you ran in the primary, you couldn't run in the general election. And so the state was at least having the mass of people claiming a right to be on the ballot uh, reduced. In Virginia, if you are nominated by a convention, uh, if, if the nomination is by the convention, a losing party can run as an independent. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's take a simpler tack. Going back to the definition of voting again, if we start with the assumption uh, that one act uh, which would have uh, an, an, uh, an effect on voting in primary, special, and general elections may be the act of selecting party officials, as, as the definition seems to say, and if in fact a delegate here is a party official, why doesn't that alone extend the act on its terms uh, to cover the situation. Well, that doesn't require that the election of the party official be in a primary, special, or general election. It simply requires that we hold that the act of electing or, or selecting the party official can ultimately have uh, an effect on the effectiveness of votes in primary, special, or general elections. And if that is the case, that's enough for coverage of this practice, isn't it? Um, I, I can't read the text, um, Justice Souter, that, that way. I, I think that the text, uh, the meaning of the text is that if you make a change in a practice 
um, or a procedure or standard for voting. With respect to voting. Yeah. With respect to a primary, special, or general election for any number of people, including uh, uh, state officers, uh, that you are that you're at least covered by the text of but the if, Act. But if we, read, if we read the definition of voting, as I have just suggested it may be read, then you lose, I take it. Well, In other words, you can't accept that reading of the term of the definition of voting and still win this case. One of the reasons on, on the Section Five issue. Well, well, I, I, I could, I suppose, ultimately, because I would submit that if, in fact, the law is that each of the 126 units in Virginia, uh, which has its convention and mass meeting, which leads to up, up to 100 uh, legislative district conventions and up to 40 state senate uh, uh, legislative district conventions, and in some years 11 uh, congressional district conventions, and then the state convention. If the, if the rule is that before these, these people who don't have lawyers, who don't have people to pre-clear with the Justice Department, before these people can meet, uh, they have to first uh, clear the time, place, and date uh, with the Justice Department. No, we're not talking about time, place, and date. We're talking about the possible application of the Act to a fee requirement. Uh, the, you can't stop with the fee, uh, because if the fee is a price... Maybe we don't stop with the fee, but maybe we start with the fee. If you, if, well, I would suggest that you should not wish to start with the fee, because I, I believe that you... Yeah, but somebody does wish to start with the fee, uh, and, and my difficulty is uh, that it, with, with your argument, is that it seems to me quite possible and, and in fact, even easy to read the definition as covering this particular requirement for the election uh, of a party official whose selection may have an effect on the effectiveness of votes in the ultimate election. Uh, and and uh, the fact that uh, the application in this instance may, may raise other questions uh, uh, about whether it applies to the timing of these delegate selections and so on is, is something to consider, but there's still the problem uh, of why, on its face, this does not apply. Um, the uh, ordinary rule of construction of this court is that if you are offered an interpretation of a statute which gra uh, raises grave constitutional issues, you will avoid it unless you are compelled to that construction by the clear intent of Congress. And my point is, if you start with the fee, you can never stop there because the only intellectually coherent grounds for, for saying that the fee uh, is covered is to say that, that the party is engaged in state action by the mere act of nominating, and therefore the whole process is ultimately federalized to the same extent it would be if it were state action. Do we disregard the Attorney General's rejection of that interpretation? I thought the Attorney General's interpretation were things close to the election of candidates, like the $45 fee, were covered, but things remote, like the time and the place of meeting, like the formulation of the party's platform, were not covered. Actually, the amicus brief, uh, Justice Ginsburg, filed by the government, uh, acknowledges that they do contend that the time, the place, the date are all covered. And remember, this, this is 30 years too late, it seems to me, to adopt radical new interpretations. Where, of where do you say they, they make that contention? In their amicus brief filed uh, by the Solicitor General. Can I... Can, um, um, yes, I'm sorry. No, were you finished? Were, were you finished? Uh, I was going to make the additional point that, it, that it, is too, it is too far down the road. Remember, the whole purpose of Section 5 was to freeze in time in 1964 
uh, the practices that were potentially discriminatory so that states wouldn't change them just as fast as the court struck them down. Now, the remedy for Section 5 is to go back to where you were in 1964. Well, in 1964, the Republican Party held its convention for this Senate seat in the John Marshall Hotel, which is boarded up and closed. And it held the next convention in the Hotel Roanoke, which is, uh, is something else entirely. Um, this is not the kind of, 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 of statute or remedy that it makes any sense 30 years down the road to give an unexpected um, interpretation to. And the interpretation would now be extremely um, um, unexpected. How long has the Attorney General's regulation been on the books? Well, the Attorney General's regulation has been on the books uh, um, for some period of time. I don't know the exact date. I don't date. know why you say it's unexpected, because this comes... The interpretation of the regulation, uh, Justice Stevens, is what is unexpected to me. The, the regulation on its face Apparently says... there are a thousand different submissions that didn't find it that unexpected. I, I, I think that the, the Turner Appendix, which has been alluded to, does not on its face disclose that any of those submissions have to do with conventions. Only one submission having to do with convention rules has been brought to this Court's attention. Um, and what, what are the other ones? Uh, the, the solicitor they have to do with mentioned 300 that did not deal with primaries. The, I don't, they, I, I've never heard that number. That number is not in any of the briefs or in the record. What is before the Court are a handful of documents that uh, the Solicitor General uh, mailed uh, to the court and to uh, counsel last week or week before last. Uh, most of them have to do with the Green Party, the Republican Party, and the Democratic Party in uh, Alaska. Um, it's, the letter is dated September 18th uh, to uh, the clerk of this court. Um, except for the, uh, for the Virginia Convention submission, uh, they all have to do with changes uh, in uh, primaries in Alaska. Well, perhaps the Solicitor General can, can tell us what, where this 300 number appears. So are you saying, to go back for a second, let's go back 30 years or 20 years, and you're a member of Congress, and suppose what you're concerned about is that the major party, the Republicans and the Democrats, say only white people can vote in our primary. And that's terrible, and you want to make it illegal, and probably the Constitution does. And then the idea comes through, maybe what they'll do is have a primary, they'll just call it a convention. And they won't go into a voting machine, they'll go meet somewhere. Are you saying Congress, under the 15th Amendment, lacks the constitutional power to forbid that? Um, I would submit two things. One is the 15th Amendment requires state action. Yeah, what they've done is the political party is simply going to go do the, just what they did before, but they won't call it a primary because they won't use a voting machine. They'll all go to a room someplace, anyone who wants to, and they'll raise their hands. Okay, I'm saying, do you think, is your argument that Congress lacks the constitutional power to do it? Uh, for two reasons. That? For yes, two reasons, no. yes. Yes. If okay. I may elaborate, for two reasons. One, one is that it's not a state function when you have nominations, and it doesn't involve state apparatus. Secondly, uh, pr the preclearance of, of this bill is too blunt. It's not finely tailored when it impinges on First Amendment rights, and Congress therefore wouldn't have adopted Section Five to deal with that problem. Thank you, Mr. Getchell. Thank you. Ms. Carolyn, you have five minutes. Thank you, Justice Stevens. I begin with one observation about what Mr. Getchell has told you today, which is he tells you how the Republicans run their convention in Virginia and how much it would cost and how it should be operated and how difficult it would be to pre-clear. Those issues are not before this court. The issue before this court is here on a motion to dismiss. If his argument depends on what the Virginia Republican Party actually does, 
then the appropriate judgment from this court is a reversal and remand so that we can conduct discovery on what the Virginia party actually does. The second point I want to make is that the word state is, of course, ambiguous. It depends on a construction of state that draws on the 15th Amendment cases which the Voting Rights Act was intended to enforce. It understands what state action was, which is when political parties conduct their public nominating function. It relies on the Department of Justice's regulations, which this court has always given great deference to. The third point is about freedom of association. Justice Scalia, your arguments would depend, would be equally strong in the context of a primary election. If the Republican Party wanted to hold a primary election restricted to party members and limit party membership to white voters only, then your argument would say they have that entitlement. If they paid for it themselves, yes. If it wasn't a state-run primary. Uh, that might be correct, but, Your Honor, the freedom of association point might be the same even if they did. And this Court clearly has never taken that broad an approach. I, know, I think the freedom Moreover, to associate is not the freedom to have the government pay for your association. I think once you get the government in paying for the primary, it's a different situation. That's correct. Now, in this case, there is no freedom of association claim, really, because if you look at the Republican call for the convention contained in the joint appendix, they allow all voters to participate. The only point they make is that they have some kind of interest in charging the $45. That may be so. But that interest will only be trenched on by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act if the Department of Justice, the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, or this court concludes that that practice of charging the $45 has the purpose or effect of discriminating on the basis of race. At this point, their claim has to be that they would have the right to make people pay even if that excluded all black voters or a disproportionate number of black voters. Again, that is the issue to be determined in preclearance. They have no First Amendment right that they have identified that would be trenched on by requiring preclearance in this case of this fee. I assume that a state cannot limit the ballot to labor union members. That's correct. Can a political party limit the ballot to labor union members? Can you have a labor union political party? That runs a primary election. No, no, no primary. It just has a convention. And so that you receives... You can't get into the convention unless you're a union member. And receives a place on the ballot above all of... It's successful states. in the first election and therefore is automatically listed on the ballot in, in later elections? I don't know, Your Honor. What I do know in this case is that Section 509B... Why, why don't you know? I don't understand why you... Wouldn't the same principle you're announcing to us apply to that as well as to, uh, to this situation? I would have to know what the state involvement in that political party's placement on the ballot is, and I don't know what that is, Your Honor. What is it here? You keep saying preferred position of the yes. Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, Precisely what is that? Under Section 242.613 of the Virginia Code, political parties receive placement on the ballot above, lexically above, all other candidates. And as uh, Mr. Bender referred, there's a function called roll-off, which means as you move down the ballot, fewer and fewer people are still voting. And it turns out that being the number one candidate or number two candidate on a ballot gives you some substantial bump up in the number of votes you receive. That's the preferential position. The second preferential aspect is that the parties need not show that this candidate has any particular level of support, whereas any independent candidate or non-party candidate running must both gain a, num a percentage of the registered voters as signatories and have those people spread across the Commonwealth. I think the number, if you, if you multiply it out right now, is about 15,000 signatures. Uh, so that's more difficult as well. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rita. No, that, yeah. that was the end of it. Would you explain to me the significance of the preferential treatment for yes. purposes of the, the act? 
Yes, Your Honor. We contend that the Virginia Republican nomination process is pervasively regulated and results in the party receiving preferential treatment. The pervasive regulation... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll concede that, uh, but why is that necessary for your case? It's not necessary to our case. It buttresses our case. Okay. It, we would... Thank you. Thank you. The case is submitted.